Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. This is found on page 822 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, If you don't own a Bible, we ask that you please take this one um, as a gift from us. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he returned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some, some, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and I'm really glad that you've uh, chosen to be with us this morning. Thanks for coming this Sunday, and especially uh, welcome you if this is your first time, um, one of the first times you've been to Christ Community. We're really grateful that you're here. No, it's not an easy thing to try a new church or come back to church for the f- first time in a long time, or maybe even come to church for the first time ever. So we're really grateful if that's you, um, that you're here with us this morning. And before we turn and look at this passage of Scripture that Jason read for us, I want to take a moment, um, just in light of everything uh, that's happened this week in our country, to continue in that spirit of lament um, and just pray and ask for God's help uh, in the midst of this, because we truly uh, and desperately need Him uh, to come to, to comfort and to heal, to bring justice and hope. So join me now as I pray uh, for us um, as a people here this morning and and for our city and our country. Heavenly Father, our minds and hearts and bodies ache over the hatred and violence unleashed on our fellow citizens uh, in Minneapolis and Baton Rouge, on police officers in Dallas and Baldwin and other places in the country. Lord Jesus, as you wept over the city of Jerusalem, we join with you as you too weep over the city of Dallas. Out of the ashes of shock and grief, restore hope and foster unity and peace. In solidarity, we remember those whose lives have been stuffed out by the evil of brutality and violence. With tears, we mourn with the families who have lost loved ones this week. We mourn the pain-filled agony for fathers, husbands, and sons who will not come home anymore. The many lonely nights that lay ahead, the empty chairs at dinner time, the missing stockings at Christmas, the lingering pain of fatherlessness. Gracious Lord, in your tender love, comfort each grieving heart. 
a merciful and sovereign God, protect our communities, cities, and our nation from further violence, thwart the plans of evildoers. We pray especially for your comfort and strength and protection for our police officers as well as those living uh, who are faithfully and serving um, and preserving the peace and promoting the common good in our cities. Lord Jesus, we pray for the church in this fearful hour that we may assume a posture of humble repentance, recognizing that evil lurks not merely somewhere or in someone else, but also in the mysterious depths of our own fallen hearts. May we as your church, your bride, be a faithful presence, shining light and truth in this dark hour of cultural hatred and violence and racism and suspicion and division and justice and corruption. Holy Spirit, empower your people to be humble and hopeful, calm and unifying, a presence of peace in the midst of deep racial wounds and divisions in our city and our nation. Heal our desperately hurting land. Visit us with your transforming power. May the gospel go forth in word and deed. Would you bring spiritual awakening? While the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy Jesus, you have come that we may have life and have it abundantly. You laid down your life on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin. You have risen from the dead and you will one day return, putting evil to rest for forever, restoring all things. In this we wait and hope. Sovereign Lord, in this time of trouble, be our refuge and strength. In Jesus, our crucified, risen, and soon returning Lord, we pray. Amen. I also invite you uh, to join me and others um, this evening at 5 o'clock at the East Patrol campus um, for a prayer gathering being hosted by the Citywide Prayer Movement Police Chief Daryl Forte. And uh, his team will share a proclamation, and a diverse group of pastors and leaders will um, lead us in prayer. And so there's information uh, here on the screen about that. Also in the YouVersion uh, app and on our Facebook page, you can find the details uh, if you'd like to join um, this evening at 5 p.m. to pray uh, for our, our city. Well, now, um, as we turn to our passage this week, let's turn from sorrow and sadness, uh, now to give you a little bit of an opportunity, maybe, uh, to laugh um, at me. And uh, now that I've said that, um, you need to laugh in a minute. So some of you already are. Thank you, Kate, for laughing uh, in advance, um, because otherwise it might be awkward if I told you you should laugh and you don't. Um, maybe it's getting awkward right now. Uh, so let's just get this. There it goes. I got some laughs. There, um, here's the thing. I like to think that I'm a courageous person. Um, someone who isn't afraid of much uh, except for heights, and if I'm really honest, probably spiders. I don't love them. Um, but thunderstorms in the middle of the night always call my bluff on my lack of courage, um, because uh, earlier this spring, in the midst of one of these really big thunderstorms that came through, there's this huge crack of thunder that exploded. It felt like right outside of our, our window, and I sat bolt upright in bed, and I, I think I must have yelled. Uh, because Rachel immediately woke up. The thunder didn't wake her up. She was sleeping very soundly, peacefully, um, with my heart pounding. And Rachel was actually pretty ticked that I had woken her up with such a violent uh, start. And she's like, there's not a bomb. This is just a thunderstorm. But in that moment, I really felt like I was dying or the world was coming to an end. I wasn't sure which was happening in that moment. But 
thunderstorms, they, they just that moment of, of a storm in the middle of the light. I'm fine with turbulence on planes. I don't love it, but it doesn't bother me. But something about a thunderstorm waking me up in the middle of the night absolutely shakes me to the core. And in that moment, for a split second, when I think that my life is ending, I realize how much I still really do fear death. And, and, it, and it's also not just that I want to avoid death. I realize how much more of my life is really oriented toward not experiencing any kind of pain or sorrow or discomfort of any kind. And, and not just physically, but also emotionally, relationally, psychologically. So much of my life I live to try to see, shield and insulate myself from pain and discomfort. Now, how much of my life is, is really driven at the core by a pursuit of comfort and happiness? 90%, the other 10 is just trying to stay alive. I mean, won't we do just about anything to stay happy, to avoid pain, to not die? But what we see this morning is that Jesus tells us that the exact opposite is the path to the good life. Because according to Jesus, if you don't learn to die, you'll never learn to live. That if you don't learn to die to yourself, to your ego, to your desires, even needs, even actual literal death, if you don't learn to die, you'll never learn to live. And last week, Pastor Paul walked us through Jesus' stunning declaration that he would build his church, that he would establish a people. You and I here this morning are evidence of what Jesus said 2,000 years ago is true, that he would build his church, that the local church is God's, is Jesus' plan A for getting what he wants done in the world done, and there isn't a plan B. And because this is Jesus' plan, and Jesus' people, and Jesus' church, Jesus promises last week that not even the gates of hell, that not even death itself will be able to conquer or stop or overcome the people that he is building. Death will not stop it. Death will not prevail. Jesus is going to reign as king and nothing, not even death itself, can stop him. Sounds pretty encouraging. That is until we get to this week. Because then there's a massive turning point, and it actually marks a massive shift in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a huge hinge in the book that turns the whole trajectory of the story, and we see it in verse 21. This is right after Jesus has made this declaration that not even death will stop his church from growing. And then he says this, Matthew writes, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chiefs, priests, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I mean, Jesus, you've got to think the disciples are saying, Jesus, this just doesn't sound exactly like the kind of victory you were talking about. Suffering, death. And, and yes, Jesus mentions resurrection on the third day, whatever that meant to the disciples. Because you see, Jewish people at that time, they had a category for resurrection, but only for a final resurrection at the end of time. They had no category, absolutely none, for a Messiah or anyone else for that matter being killed and then being raised again in the present time before the end of the age. So it just goes completely over their heads, this raised in three days thing. All they hear is suffering and death. 
And we're used to the idea, right, of, of Jesus dying. If you know anything about Jesus, you know that he, he died. That's kind of the one thing that, if you've heard anything about Jesus, is that he died on a cross. For the disciples, though, this was shocking, inconceivable. I mean, it seems completely and totally incompatible with the great promise that Jesus has just made to build his church and that death isn't going to stop it. And so Peter, who's really actually, he's been kind of crushing it as a disciple lately. Um, he made this great proclamation about, Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter gets the right answer. And Jesus even says, flesh and blood didn't reveal, you know, couldn't know this. God's revealed this to you. I mean, Peter has, has been on mark just moments ago in the conversation. And when he hears this, though, he pulls Jesus aside, kind of like when your dad pulled you aside and, and tells you to, to knock it off. He, he pulls Jesus aside. That's what the text says. He pulls him aside, and Peter does this to Jesus. He says, he says Jesus, this will never happen to you. Jesus, this, it can't. It won't. You are not going to die like this. Come on. And that's when Jesus calls Peter the devil. And it's kind of a low point for Peter, not the lowest, but it's a pretty low point. And I mean, you kind of feel for Peter a little bit because he's, he's only trying to help, right? He's trying to stay optimistic. Jesus, like, I know maybe you're having a bad day, but it's not as bad as all that. And he's doing what a Messiah's wingman ought to do, right? You'd think. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, I mean, that situation escalates pretty quickly. But this is exactly what Satan tried to do to Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he is doing the same thing. Peter's doing the same thing. Satan offered Jesus power without a cross, fame without suffering. And in essence, Peter is doing the exact same thing. Saying, Jesus, you don't have to die. You don't have to do this. You won't die. But there can be no crown without a cross. For Jesus, or ultimately for us, for you, suffering comes before glory, humiliation before exaltation. This is Jesus' path and his pattern. And it's the path that is for everyone who would follow him, for everyone who would trust him as rescuer, worship him as God, and obey him as Lord. And while Peter's intentions, I'm sure, are good, this is a flashback to that moment in the wilderness with Satan trying to offer a different way, a way without a cross. He's trying to talk Jesus out of the cross, convince Jesus to write a different story. And this leads us to the first lesson that we see this morning in learning how to die. If you're going to find life through death, you have to know the right story. We have to know the right story. You see, for example, there's two films, two great films, The Sound of Music and Saving Private Ryan. They're, they're both centered around the story of World War II, the Holocaust, the events of that time period. So in that sense, they, they both tell the same story, sort of, right? But Sound of Music, you know, the, it's full of music and singing and dancing and, and little kids and romance. It's rated G, when Saving Private Ryan, it's, it's, well, it's not any of those things. Peter thought life with Jesus should be more like the Sound of Music version. And sadly, so do most 
of us as American Christians. Now, Christians in other parts of the world, minority Christians here in the United States, have long histories of experiencing suffering and hardship, but for many of us, our default expectation is ease, not hardship. And we worship painlessness, and we think that life should be easy and happy, and we're, we're shocked when it isn't, and even angry at God when suffering comes. So which story are we trying to live? Because we're just like Peter, aren't we? I mean, we may have a category for a suffering Christ, but not for a suffering Christian. Not for a suffering me. And, and yet in the text, Jesus actually refers to his death and suffering as the things of God. He says, Peter, you're not thinking the things of God, you're thinking the things of man. The things of God involve Jesus going to a cross and dying. Now you might be thinking, but wait a second, isn't death the enemy? Isn't suffering an imposter that, that none of this stuff belongs on God's good earth? And all of that is true, and yet sometimes God uses it in our lives, just as he did with Jesus, to bring about rescue and redemption. You see, self-sacrifice is the form that Trinitarian love takes in a fallen and sin-marred world. And this passage is so key to understanding why Jesus died, because it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. This isn't Jesus ending up in Jerusalem and things getting out of hand, and then he gets arrested and killed. No, Jesus went to Jerusalem to die. There were promises in the Old Testament of this kind of murky, suffering figure who would come and somehow through his suffering actually take the sufferings of his people and, and somehow by suffering restore his people and bring healing. The great English theologian and preacher John Stott explains it this way. He says, Jesus knew he would suffer and die and it was his choice. He was determined to fulfill what was written of the Messiah, however painful it would be. This was neither fatalism nor a martyr complex. It was quite simply that he believed the Old Testament scripture to be his father's revelation. It was for the salvation of sinners that he would die, giving his life as a ransom to set them free. Nothing would deter or deflect him. Suffering and then glory. You see, but when we confuse the stories, not only does Jesus refer to that confusion as sort of demonically evil, but we set ourselves up for disaster. Because listen, if your goal in life is to avoid as much pain and achieve as much personal happiness as possible, still, here's the thing, you're going to end up suffering either way. But if you have that as your goal, a painless life, your suffering will feel meaningless. It only becomes an interruption to your actual goal in life. And you won't have a category for it, and you'll end up trying to rebuke Jesus over it. And you'll miss the story that God is telling. A story in which, yes, suffering is real, and which suffering is terrible, but also where it is answered and redeemed and ultimately overcome. Which story are you trying to live? If you want to live, you have to learn how to die. And so in this one moment, Jesus completely crushes Peter's expectations for Jesus' life. 
Uh, but Jesus doesn't stop there. Now he's going to destroy Peter's expectations for Peter's life. Um, listen to what Jesus says next. You can look at this in verses 23 and 24. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be a Christian, you need to deny yourself, your needs, your desires, your comfort, your ego, to, to die, to die to yourself. And that's what taking up your cross means. It means death. It isn't just a metaphor for dealing with a difficult neighbor or an unpleasant coworker. We often kind of have this phrase in English, well, they're just my cross to bear. You know, a, a cross is a means of execution. When Jesus says, take up your cross, it doesn't just mean put up with the annoying person in your life. It means die to yourself. It's a picture of death, mortification. And now expecting suffering to happen to us in a broken and fallen world, that's, that's one thing. But Jesus doesn't just call us to sort of sit and wait for suffering that might come. He actually calls us to actively deny ourselves. Now that's a whole new level, right? Self-denial actually means actively inviting discomfort into our lives. Recently, Rachel and I have been talking about doing the, the Whole30 eating plan, where this is one where you kind of basically eat like lettuce and eggs, and really that's kind of it, uh, for like 30 days. Now, we're going to do that after we get back from vacation. I mean, let's not get too carried away here. Um, but it got me thinking about how little I deny myself anything. So as we were talking about this and what's on the, the list of things that you can eat, and I was like, wait a second, so no ice cream or beer for 30 days? I actually said to her, is that possible for us? Can we really do this? And she assured me that we could. Um, but how rare is it that we deny ourselves anything, even ice cream or beer? These are just little things, food things. Now, don't be confused here. It's not that we just deny ourselves the things we like, and then in doing that somehow, in and of itself, that makes us inherently good or more spiritual. In fact, that's a really dangerous way of thinking that can actually trick us into thinking we're dying to ourselves when we are actually being the worst kind of selfish. Writer Stephen uh, Dila explains it like this. He says, the danger is to leverage religious practice for personal gain, that's sort of the idea of the prosperity gospel. If I do enough good things, then God owes me a good life. To leverage it for pride and judgment of others, this turns into moralism or self-salvation, which is just legalism. Jesus calling to one to, to die to oneself, deny oneself, is not given to the irreligious, but to the religious. Will we, the faithful, stop trying to leverage our faith to get what we want? It's the worst kind of selfishness when we take these kinds of denials and really end up trying to manipulate God through that to, to get something we want more than him. You see, the sort of denying oneself that Jesus is talking about is the kind of denying oneself that, that an Olympic athlete does when they're training for their sport. It's the denying themselves of ease and comfort for a greater, grander, more glorious purpose. It's about training, about following Jesus rather than our own will. 
loving him supremely and others sacrificially. This is what it means to die to ourselves on a practical basis. It means to choose Jesus's will and way rather than our own will and way. Consistently, always, every time, every day, whenever those two things come into conflict, that we don't choose our own will and way, but we choose Jesus's will and way until one day, slowly, over much time in the work of the Spirit, Jesus' will and way slowly start to become ours. And this is the second lesson, that death must be practiced daily. And it's extremely difficult. And it's also the only way to actually truly follow Jesus. The great British author G.K. Chesterton uh, put it this way, he says, the Christian ideal has not been, found, not been tried and found wanting. It's not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's not been tried and found wanting, but been found difficult and left untried. In the 15th century, a German monk named Thomas Akempis uh, went to a monastery and lived in the Netherlands, and there he wrote one of the most well-known and widely read devotional books of all time, even to this day, called The Imitation of Christ. And in it, he makes this sobering observation. He says, Jesus has many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. He has many seekers of his consolation, but few of tribulation. He finds many companions at his feasting, but few at his fasting. All desire to rejoice in him, few are willing to do, endure anything for him. If indeed, and this was so convicting to me, if indeed there were anything better or more useful for man's salvation than suffering, Christ would have shown us by word and example, but he clearly exhorts his disciples who follow him and all who wish to follow him to carry the cross. Which means that life gets harder not easier the further we go along. And you have to kill the assumption that if I just build a big enough reservoir of happiness with enough big fences around it, then my life will be all right, because it's not how it works. And I love how the, the writer N.D. Wilson summarizes it. He's written several books for children, and actually he wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly not long ago on why he writes scary stories for children. It's a fantastic read. And I love what he says in his book, Death by Living. And listen to this. He says, the truth is that life, a life well lived is always lived on a rising scale of difficulty. A life well lived is always living on a rising scale of difficulty, which is really the opposite of what I've always wanted to believe is true. Because for me, it's, it's always been like, well, once I get out of college or once I finish seminary or when I get married, then life will be easier. Or then when you have kids, it's like, well, once the kids get a little bit older, or once the kids move out, or, or maybe when we hire more staff, or, or when I get to retirement, then things will be easier. But I've learned, I've learned from those of you who have walked through those stages ahead of me, that it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. It only gets harder. Life is like a good video game. It only gets harder the more advanced you become in it. The stakes get higher. You need more practice. It becomes even more difficult. We need more practice dying, taking up his cross. 
So ask yourself, where do you need to die today? Now again, Jesus doesn't mean that we arbitrarily invite hardship, that we try to find ways to just sort of senselessly make our lives more difficult. Of course not. But we embrace it when it comes. And we gladly say no to ourselves for something bigger, something better. And when we say no to us, and yes to him, it will feel like a sort of death, because it really, that's what it is. But that's okay, because we need the practice. So one more British author for you here. If you know me, you probably know who it is. I think C.S. Lewis says it best. Submit to death, death of your ambition and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. If you want to live, you have to learn how to die and practice daily. And if you are, and if you are really living this life, his life, then this is the only thing that makes sense of everything else. So don't miss this last thing. And that is that there are things worse than dying. That's the only way that Jesus' words can make sense here. To take up our, our, his cross, to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves. The, the only way that those words make sense as a pathway to life is if there's something worse than dying. Now, as I'm saying that, don't get me wrong, we are never meant to die. We weren't designed for death. Death is the enemy, and death is horrific, as all of us are so painfully aware in light of the violence and killings this week. But there is something worse than death. Look at verses 26 and 28 through 28, where Jesus says this. He says, For what will it profit a man, a person, if they gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? What shall it gain a man, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels. The Son of Man, that's Jesus. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he is done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, God's judgment, Jesus says he will repay. God's judgment is far worse than physical death. And the treasure of sharing in God's kingdom and his glory far outweighs death to self, even if necessary to the point of physical death. And then Jesus adds this really interesting and super hard to interpret line about some of them standing there not tasting death, not dying until they see this happen. And interpreters are all over the place on what this means. I mean, there's six or seven major different ways people try to understand what Jesus is saying here. I think it's most likely that Jesus is referring to the time after his resurrection, that there's some people standing there listening to him in that moment who will see him in his risen body before he ascends to heaven, that they'll have a taste of his newly inaugurated, 
his newly launched kingdom came via his death and resurrection. But the key here is that the way to that kingdom, the way to that new and glorious thing being launched is only through death and then resurrection. Only to death to self and and ultimately even physical death. We have to realize that that is not the worst that we can experience as people. Because what does it profit you to have a family that looks perfect, perfect but is soulless? A massive bank account or house but to be fruitless. Never a new list of pleasures or stuff but a life that's meaningless. See, death will end all this, and worse than dying is dying empty and facing judgment. It reminds me of this great duel between good and evil, this fight between Voldemort and Dumbledore, and particularly the scene in the Order of the Phoenix where they have this great fight. I just want to read a portion of this for you. Let yourself soak in this story for a moment. You do not seek to kill me, Dumbledore, called Voldemort. His scarlet eyes narrowed over the top of the shield. Above such brutality, are you? We both know that there are other ways of destroying a man, Dumbledore said calmly, continuing to walk toward Voldemort as though he had not a fear in the world. Merely taking your knife would not satisfy me. There is nothing worse than death, Dumbledore. You are quite wrong, said Dumbledore, still closing in upon Voldemort and speaking as lightly as though they were discussing the matter over drinks. Indeed, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. It's great writing, isn't it? It's my greatest weakness too, one of them that I think that death is the worst thing, that I think that this life is it, that, that if I'm going to have any pleasure or joy or have my dreams fulfilled or my hopes manifest completely, that it has to be now in these 80, maybe 90 years if God would grant that much time, that all of the goodness that I want has to come now and that death is the absolute worst thing. Now, theologically, I believe that I will live forever with Jesus in a world made new, where all that is wrong will be made right, where every sacrifice is restored and every heartache is healed. And and I would guess that, that a lot of us here this morning believe that, at least here in our minds. But do I, do we actually live like it? Or am I living as though this life is the ultimate, as this life is it? Or do I live in anticipation of something more? Do I truly believe in ways that actually change me that our suffering will really end, that every sacrifice will be worth it, that I'm not missing out but simply being patient? Do I believe that everything done in his name for his kingdom will not go unfinished, that I can give myself away because I will receive so much more in the end? Can I stare death in the face without flinching knowing that in losing my life I might just find it? And I'll be honest, I mean, I'm not there yet. I assure you. Thunderstorms in the middle of the night still scare me. Death still seems like the worst so often. But I take comfort in this. I take comfort in the fact that, like me, Peter still didn't get it either. 
In fact, it actually gets far worse for Peter before it gets better because he didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to be crucified. I mean, of course he didn't, right? None of us do. So he denies Jesus, denies him three times, denies that he even knows who Jesus is. And yet Jesus still dies for him. Because Jesus knew the only way to save Peter, the only way to save me, to save me, it's, it's not by trying harder, adding a few more rules. It's not by believing that we can somehow be good enough. Jesus has to do more than teach us how to die. He has to die in our place. He has to do more than just point out the best way for us to live. He has to live life for us. And Peter saw it. He experienced God's forgiveness and restoration. He witnessed the cross and the empty tomb, and that made all the difference. For Peter learns how to die. Ultimately, he's crucified. Tradition has it crucified upside down, actually, because of Jesus. But before his execution, Peter wrote these words in a letter that we still have called 1 Peter. It's in your Bible. And he writes this. This is the same Peter who said that Jesus would never die, who denied he even knew Jesus when Jesus was dying. He writes these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And after you have suffered a little while, and a little while may be the entirety of your life, but compared to eternity, that's a little while. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, will himself restore, comfort, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us to take the same journey. Help me to take the same journey that Peter took from a place of having no category for a suffering Christ or a suffering Christian to being able to write the words that he writes and that is not to be surprised as though something strange were happening to us when we face suffering. Would you give us the grace even see a lifetime of suffering as but a little while in light of an eternity and glory with Jesus. Would we embrace the suffering and the humiliation that become before the glory and the exaltation with Christ? In Jesus' name, amen.